Welcome to another edition of this series of talks organized on behalf of SPIDERS, the sole platform for initiating discourses on equitable and resilient society. These talks complement a series of papers published on the SPIDERS platform dedicated to outlining the building blocks of post-capitalist political economy, not oriented around growth and profit, but rather good lives and a flourishing web of life in times of profound planetary change. Hosting these talks are a founder of Peer-to-Peer -peer Foundation, Michelle Bowens, and myself, Ruk Kranz. Today, to help us outline some of these building blocks, we are joined by two distinguished guests, co-authors of the paper on alternative national accounting, Jacques Richard and Sebastian Berger. Welcome. Welcome, thank you. So instead of us doing the introductions on your behalf, we thought it would be great for our audiences to hear from yourselves uh, how you would describe your backgrounds and research. And in no particular order, uh, why don't we start with you, uh, uh, Sebastian? Uh, thanks. Uh, yes, I'm Sebastian Berger. I'm a senior lecturer at University uh, of the West of England in Bristol. And my expertise is in, uh, you could say, the economics of Carl William Cap or the so-called social costs of neoliberalism, which is a topic that I've been working on for about 15 to 20 years, trying to understand the uh, problems um, that arise in capitalism or neoliberalism from the, from the cost shifting that occurs within capitalist firms. And um, from a historian, economic thought perspective to first of all trying to understand uh, the, the the problems and conceptualizing or even thinking about that and so from a philosophical or historical orientation you could also say hermeneutic orientation I've tried to wrap my head around this uh, less from an accounting perspective this is where professor Richard and I actually try to work together uh, uh, to link in these uh, different approaches from let's say my more economic hermeneutic approach and his more critical accounting approach and we, we will see that in a minute and so yeah in a nutshell that's been my work for the past and um and that's also what my article is about excellent thank you uh jacques would you like to uh say a little bit about your work uh yes thank you uh, so I uh, begin to be interested in the topic of ecological economics about uh, 15 years ago because we found that uh, in uh, my University Paris Dauphine a special uh, master devoted to this question and at that time I realized that uh, accounting uh, could be a good uh, weapon um, in matter of uh, uh, ecological problem because uh, uh, it is an, a powerful tool today to <clears throat> defend, uh, to conserve, the unfortunately only the financial capital. And my idea was to take this weapon against, to, re to return the weapon against uh, capitalism and uh, to use this very, very powerful weapon to, of conservation uh, for the sake of uh, natural and uh, <clears throat> human capital. It was the beginning of a kind of uh, a very interesting uh, experience. Uh, and um, after this lapse of uh, 15 years, we have uh, published with uh, some uh, <clears throat> former students who have uh, made dissertations with me uh, in different countries, uh, notably in China, uh, in uh, Russia. So we have developed a kind of proposal. Uh, it, the name is KRTDL model, which is uh, today, even in France, also uh, has uh, uh, promoted uh, some interest in different spheres. So I am uh, in full uh, swing of developing this idea 
with uh, fortunately the help of economists such like such uh, as uh, Sebastian. And uh, there is a growing interest, but the struggle is very difficult because the power uh, which is at the top of the financial uh, sphere is very, very uh, strong. Well, thank you so much for that introduction. Um, and I think that's a perfect kind of interlude into uh, your article uh, with Sebastian. Uh, so if uh, we understood correctly, Sebastian, you will take over uh, and explain a little bit about um, the basic tenets of, of this specific article. Yeah, that's that's right. The floor is yours. <clears throat> All right. So um, this article was about bringing together the perspectives of critical accounting and what might be called critical heterodox economics in the tradition of institutional, ecological, but also social economists, uh, and in particular, a body of work done by economists such as Thorstein Veblen, Carl William Kapp, John Maurice Clark, and others, uh, since understanding the problem, uh, since on, on understanding the problem arising from firms' capital accounting and cost accounting practices, in particular, the problem of cost shifting and social costs. And, um, our topic deals with the question of transitioning national accounting from monetary to social ecological cost accounting. However, this question cannot be addressed without addressing the limitations of existing firms accounting practices, because it is here that the problems emerge regarding the monetary calculations of costs and capital. So these problems then also affect national accounting. And um, that's why we have to start by talking about what's wrong with firms accounting and monetary accounting in general before we can really address national accounting. So first we highlight the fact that critiques of monetary national accounting have a long-standing history, but have not led to substantial reforms. And uh, we thus do not have so much a knowledge problem, but a problem of implementation or what you might call institutional reform. However, saying it's not a knowledge problem, you know, it's not trying to underestimate the deeper theoretical quest uh, for understanding the nature of the problem. So we argue that the problem really lies in the flaws of economic calculations based on market prices or monetary exchange values. And then that's on the firm level and the national level. But what does that mean? And what do we know about that? And so we actually turn to the insights that were generated and presented and discussed during the so-called uh, socialist calculation debate, which is also sometimes referred to as the planning debate of the 1920s and 1930s uh, that emerged as a result of uh, Ludwig von Mises' challenge to uh, Otto von Neurath's proposal for calculations uh, in real kind in a socialist or communist economy. So within this debate, uh, those who defended the uh, planned economy and an, an alternative to market-based calculation developed a host of arguments. What are the problems with monetary uh, calculations? And they revolve around mainly ontological and epistemological limitations of monetary uh, calculations. And so, what we have distilled from this debate uh, is, is mainly um, the insights of Carl William Kapp, but also Carl Polanyi on, on what's, what are these limitations. And um, first of all, we like to mention the inability of monetary uh, market price-based calculations to capture complex environmental effects. And we call this an informational limitation. So an individual firm and operates based on uh, market prices in terms of its accounting, cannot um, harness the full information, does not possess the full information, and cannot know about all the effects triggered in complex environmental and social systems that are knock-on effects from their decisions. So we, we call that an informational limitation of the market calculus. And that actually contradicts um, the claims of Mises fundamentally because Mises and his collaborator Hayek 
argued that markets are superior in terms of their informational uh, capacities, um, you know, relative to a uh, state uh, or governmental body. And uh, in, based on our um, understanding, that's actually not true and might actually, you know, it's actually the opposite because um, whereas firms cannot know, an individual firm cannot know many of these uh, effects, um, state agency uh, that is uh, designed to understand these complex effects might well be able to establish uh, a body of knowledge uh, about these complex environmental effects that a firm's production decision entails. So that, that's the first, and we would say probably the most important argument is on epistemological limitations of the market calculus. The second important uh, point is the inability to reflect absolute values um, because the market uh, calculus is about relative values and exchange values and absolute values such as human life and health, but also the life and health of other species uh, cannot be reflected through exchange values um, because um, absolute values cannot be exchanged against equivalent. Uh, so uh, they, they don't have exchange value, they have dignity. Uh, and uh, that's a position developed by Immanuel Kant. And we would call this the problem of value incommensurability that you, you, you cannot uh, express an absolute value through an exchange value. So you cannot capture it. So it's, it's another limitation. The third limitation would be the inability to express the irreversibility of economic process, meaning the, the entropic nature of the biophysical transformation process. And we call that the entropy incompatibility of the market calculus. It's not designed to express uh, the problem uh, or capture the problem of entropy. And uh, irreversibilities cannot be addressed through uh, a mechanism that is perfectly reversible, such as a market transaction uh, where you exchange goods and money and, and that there's no loss um, of, of uh, entropy. So that, then the fourth limit inability would be to reflect the needs uh, of those without purchasing power, those who cannot participate in market transactions. So their needs uh, are not reflected in that. So it's an incompletion, uh, just like the future generations are not reflected. So the market calculus is incomplete because the needs of uh, a great number of people living in the future, and even though the poor of today uh, are not reflected. So it's incomplete, meaning the information in the market calculus that is um, reflected in it is, is not complete. And we have the same problem with, with the issue of cost shifting, and we'll talk about that more today, that uh, if a significant part of the costs are shifted uh, away outside of the market, out of the balance sheet of um, capitalist firms, then those costs do not feature within the price system. So prices do not reflect full cost information. So they're systemically too low. And so they again, incomplete. The market calculus is an incomplete system of information. And, um, and then just uh, in addition, we really have this issue that market prices have a lot to do with asymmetric power relations and markets. And so they're much more the result of our, really an outcome of, of an arbitrariness because depending on who has the power, which industry based on which technologies is at the moment at the helm, we get a completely different set of price relationships. And so there's nothing natural about uh, a price system, and it's it's quite an arbitrary system, and not a scientifically uh, established system that would reflect scientific knowledge about uh, the preconditions of survival of society uh, in the long run, uh, in terms of sustainability. So we, we have we have these um, limitations, but there are many more. I just now mentioned these because they help us to understand where we're going with this work. And so after having established what already we understand the problem to be, meaning the market calculus, uh, we are even more surprised that the mainstream economists have really uh, misconceptualized the problem in a way that uh, would demand it to be fixed through the market mechanism. So uh, the market mechanism being the cause of the problem 
they prescribe more of the cause to the problem. So they say, well, we'll fix it through another market mechanism. Really, we understand and they call it an externality or market failure. And they say, well, we just have to fix the market to improving the market or more market. And, they, they, and what we think, what we argue is they fail to understand the depth of the problem, which is residing in the market um, calculus itself. So as a result of to portray this fundamental problem of cost shifting and these epistemological ontological limitations as fixable through uh, isolated individual ex post re uh, measures. Uh, and the problem is, is, is portrayed as almost accidental, uh, uh, happening in a minority of cases um, and, um, and so the, the main mechanisms proposed are taxation uh, or compensation payments or introducing some trading or market mechanism to fix it. And this is complete mischaracterization or misconception of the problem. So social costs or externalities from our perspective, um, meaning this, 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 this part of the share of the costs or the effects costs that are not accounted for, that's not a thing that can be exchanged or brought back through some kind of mechanism, but it's really a loss or damage uh, that is sustained by society, future generations or third parties that is uh, even hidden for some time. So there's uh, secrecy around it. Oftentimes we don't know um, the true extent of these losses and damages until it's too late. Uh, and it can't be easily reversed because some of the losses are irreversible, such as human life and health. So, um, and, and it's clearly not an accidental problem because it's rooted in institutions that we created, namely accounting practices and other legal institutions. So what we really see here is social costs as being a problem of a system-wide uh, issue, uh, institutional issue in the production system steered by market calculus. Uh, and so the, the, the root of the problem, the cause is in organizing production through market valuation. And that then leads to all these other knock-on effects. So we, we don't think it's appropriate to solve it through more market mechanisms, but we need other mechanisms, institutional reforms. So this requires a systemic, meaning institutional system-wide approach that is precautionary and preventative um, based on scientific insights uh, into the preconditions for social and uh, ecological sustainability. And what we propose is changes in accounting standards, changes in social ecological safety standards. These are legal and by law, and as well as technological controls, which are implied really in those standard set setting processes. And again, what we see here that the mainstream does not talk about technology. It does not talk about future as a modality of time. And leaving technology and future out is, uh, and therefore leaving time out of this discussion is, is a major problem. Um, it's not surprising because they also leave entropy out of it. So if you leave entropy out of it, you leave time out of it and, and then you, you're really uh, lost because you, you have misconceptualized the problem and so the solutions can't work. So well, what we have to be honest about is that even these reforms that we're proposing, which have to do with conservation, uh, conserving the lasting sources of wealth, meaning you know the funds and stocks of production, human beings, nature, ecology, some part of the biophysical costs uh, cannot shift cost shifting because the future cannot be avoided and that has to do with the entropy law but most parts can certainly be avoided most parts of this socialization of cost and cost shifting that, that can be avoided through adequate institutional reform so so the minimum task that we outline in our article is to reform uh, capitalist accounting practices to reflect the full real costs of production uh, what does that mean? So we need an understanding of what are the true costs of sustainable social provisioning. And that means we need, a, uh, we need to, to know the costs of maintaining funds and stocks of production in real terms, not the monetary terms. We need to know 
how much does it take to maintain these funds and stocks of production? That includes machines, that includes uh, humans, that includes ecological funds of production. And um, what does it, what does the upkeep cost, the maintenance cost, the so-called user cost? Because only if we know the user costs, we can conserve, we can actually pay for the costs of conservation. And so we need a real account of that in terms of matter energy flows and services. And then we can build on uh, the standard setting. Uh, but that requires an, a knowledge of complex systems. So we need to work with a host of sciences, ecology, environmental toxicology, uh, environmental sciences, to try to set the standards correctly to stay within those uh, with, within an area where conservation can occur. So it has to do with defining user rates <clears throat> uh, and technologies adequate to not over-harvest stocks, to not over-harvest funds, and to keep them within uh, the boundaries. And so it has a lot to do with uh, agreeing on legal standards. And this is a social process and that is socially costly. So it costs something to do that. It, it has a cost, it has a transaction cost. There is a cost of uh, maintaining funds and stocks. And the, the goal here is to say, these costs have to be borne as much as possible by producers. So producers, so we, we need to start at the source of the problem. Producers need to be stopped of, from cost shifting and they need to pay these costs of production. And that's where the capitalist accounting reform comes in because we need to define the, the human fund of production and ecosystem funds of production as a capital so that the conservation rules don't just apply to financial capital, but also to human capital and also to ecological capital because then cost shifting within balance sheet operations can no longer occur. And if you stop cost shifting at the production side, at the side of the source of the problem, uh, that's preventative. That's a precautionary approach and a preventative approach rather than what the mainstream of economists uh, propose to let the problem happen and then fix it later if, if we find out about it through some compensation market or taxation mechanism, which is not preventative. But what we need is actually preventative approach. And we believe that that has to do with legal accounting standards uh, uh, standards and practices that we need need to address. And that's, of course, where all the work that has been done by Professor Richard comes in um, uh, on this matter. And so maybe I would hand over to him at this point uh, if he wants to um, chip in on, on how that would specifically work um, in his framework. I have a switch. There is a problem. Hello? Yes, we can hear you. So Sebastian asked you to present uh, how you solve some of these issues with your uh, tree capital accounting. Yes. Maybe Sebastian, you want to reformulate uh, your question to Jack? Yeah, no problem. I just uh, wanted to ask if uh, if if Jack wants to fill in uh, some idea or information about how specifically a reformed capitalist accounting tool uh, bookkeeping book bookkeeping operation could look that prevents the cost shifting from producers to uh, humans and society and future generations. How how that would uh, work within existing double entry bookkeeping. Uh, so it's basically an evolutionary uh, approach, not a revolutionary. It's not trying to eliminate markets. It's not trying to eliminate prop private property. It's not trying to eliminate money. It is basically a reform proposal at this micro level uh, that would allow us to get the price system. First of all, a full real cost uh, price system and how that would work with the, the double entry bookkeeping. Okay. Uh, do you want me to speak? Okay. Okay. Uh, also, uh, uh, starting point is that uh, 
a few people know that there is a kind of a worldwide constitution based on accounting. Economics are turning around this basic constitution. This constitution is named IFRS. It's shared by almost all states of the world. A very powerful uh, weapon for capitalists. And the uh, uh, second uh, um, main point is that in classical accounting, there is no question to value the asset on price basis. It means that uh, classical accounting is devoted to conservation. There is no idea of calculation of uh, potential profit. All assets, except those that have been sold, are on a cost value. And in the uh, liability side, there is a capital. Marx has seen the capital on the asset side. He has not seen that the capital is something which is due to the capitalist to be conserved. So a very powerful um, instrument on conservation. And uh, it is perfectly possible to turn this instrument in favor of a symmetric uh, conservation of the human and the natural capital. Of course, connected to scientific, uh, um, scientific targets of conservation of nature, for example, those promoted by the uh, international groupment of scientists, and for human capital, some uh, <coughs> targets of conservation uh, given by ergonomes and so on. I am, so if we take this idea of uh, capital as debt, it means something to be reimbursed. It is a powerful instrument in order to transform the whole economic system with uh, new prices, new cost, of course, new cost, uh, new prices, and also the idea, very important, of uh, future uh, ecological co-management. You know the famous German co-management, but it is an instrument which is not sufficient in order to take account of nature and to take account of the powerful, the power of financial, um, uh, financial people so the idea of care is to transform this uh, uh, management uh, in order to reintegrate the power of representants who could give their, their uh, um, approbation of uh, the conservation of the different types of capitals. So it is a revolution in a sense of power. Capital is power, as said by uh, some specialists, uh, but uh, uh, this power has all been in the hands of the financial capitals, and it is very important today to have a, an equivalent of the today's system of accounting, but return in favor of the conservation of the free capitals. Economists said generally that there are free uh, types of uh, factors, but uh, these three types of factors have never been taken in serious uh, for the sake of the systematic conservation. So this is the idea, the broad idea. Uh, this is uh, connected to a new system of uh, laws, of course. Accounting is a, is a branch of law. Some uh, international teachers in accounting, in, um, in law, have uh, not seen that the, the power of accounting law. You are obliged today to conserve your financial capital. Uh, in France and other countries, there is a kind of delict for non-conservation of capital, but the equivalent is not uh, 
uh, is not aware, is not present for the sake of the two other capitals. This, uh, these are the broad ideas, of course, and uh, this is uh, difficult for accountants, uh, especially ecological accountants, to have their word uh, understood because people, uh, due to the neoclassics notably, they always believe that uh, every monetization is for the sake of uh, the price estimation of assets. And uh, but you could conceive a monetization which is connected to the conservation of uh, the free capitals. But it's not simple to, to, to do, to, to say that uh, many people uh, who do not have the acquaintance with the classical ac accounting uh, believe that every monetization is for uh, marchandization. Uh, so it is uh, difficult to, to introduce this uh, new idea of a new system of uh, accounting. And uh, of course, uh, to finish, uh, national accounting is based fundamentally on uh, micro, micro accounting. And uh, if you transform micro accounting, which is a priority, you transform also uh, GDP, you transform uh, macroeconomics uh, data. Excuse me, my English is not uh, very good, but I try to do my best. <laughs> Thank you, no, it was understandable. Um, I, I think uh, our listeners will, will definitely get, get the explanation that you gave. Um, Rock, is it time to, for us to ask some questions? Uh, sure. If uh, Sebastian, you, you uh, did you think that we would uh, close this with with uh, Jacques uh, kind of feeling? Yeah, it? sounds good. Sounds good. Sure. <clears throat> okay. So maybe maybe I can start, Rock, if you don't mind. Is that okay? Sure. Yeah. So I I went through the text, which I I found very interesting, and I just took out some of the concepts that I think not uh, everybody is familiar with. So you know, some things that you might want to explain. Uh, to a broader audience. So the first question is that in the beginning of your text, you says that accounting, classic accounting, uh, follows a formal rationality, but mm -hmm. not a substantive rationality. So I, if you if you care to explain the difference between these two forms of rationality and how, how it applies to this issue. Yeah, thank you. That's a very good question. Um, so basically, this distinction between these two forms of rationality goes back to Max Weber and um, Carl William Kapp has a particular interpretation of this distinction. But uh, let, let, let's say, why is it called rationality? Why is it called formal rationality? The idea is that capitalist um, Counting practices re represent a form of rationality, but why is it formal? And so Weber and Kapp agree that it is formal because it is uh, not rooted in anything outside of itself. So it, it seems rational to account for um, capital, uh, financial capital in a particular way. But if you take the position of Max Weber and Kapp, and if you say also Karl Polanyi, is that really this is um, not uh, acknowledging the fact that what you take as an input for this operation is based, for example, on things like uh, manipulation. Uh, uh, let's say you use advertisement to manipulate your consumers and, and they buy it at a higher price than they would naturally or they would not have bought it at all. So you have created something artificially, which you then also use for your uh, inputs into your double uh, double entry bookkeeping, uh, which is uh, yeah, it's a rational operation, but it's formal. Um, it's it's not acknowledging the fact that the information you're using is is a result of a social process uh, that is uh, largely a result of power asymmetries uh, and arbitrary uh, results such as excluding the poor or future generations. So it seems very rational. But Cap 
uh, really pointed out or bringing out this this element that Weber already mentioned but didn't fully bring out. It's it's formal. It's um it's like a computer would a computer would not care what information it's using, um, but a human being say oh I'm I'm uh, here calculating all day with numbers which are largely arbitrarily derived. Uh, for example, because they don't in include a large part of the cost that we've externalized and shifted to future generations. So all the numbers I'm using, I'm calculating all day are really not only arbitrary, they're also incomplete. And therefore, I think to myself, I'm being rational and making rational decisions, allocation decisions based on profitability concerns. But that is really a very uh, a dumb or narrow version of rationality and therefore formal, purely formal, because it doesn't have any concern for the fact that the information you are using for your so-called rational calculation is incomplete, arbitrary, exclusionary, and so on. So that's the idea why that's only formal. And uh, Max Weber and Cap. Uh, construed a, an alternative version of a rationality that is substantive, that actually cares about whether an economic cause of action or a calculation or decision-making, economic decision-making, uh, supplies for the needs of a uh, community. So in short, uh, social provisioning process. And that then involves a substantive concern for, okay, what are the total real costs of this decision? You know, are we simply shifting lots and lots of costs to the future? Well, that's not good. Maybe we should, uh, you know, make an economic decision that does not shift so many costs to the future. So as a concern for the longevity and sustainability of community, in this provisioning process and hence it's substantive. Why substance? Substance actually in the German word is material, materiale rationalität. So there's a concern for the material nature of this process and that goes back to Aristotle that there is a, uh, a material uh, a, a, or you could say substance that is in itself actualizing its own potential and that's human being living in society it's a, a living entity that is uh has potential from nature and that is unfolding in this material reality and we can we are concerned with that that this is not about an empty calculation of costs and benefits that is money things that have no life you know for aristotle money is pure nomisma it is a designated thing in exchange. It is in itself void of life. It's not of substance. And so uh, this is completely different, the rationality that is concerned for substance. And uh, of course, this Aristotelian tradition links up with the Kantian concern. And that is why Weber's definition is called neo-Kantian, a neo-Kantian concern uh, for a rationality that is co concerned for uh, what is good for human being and society or humanity as a whole. And that's the categorical imperative. And so you need an economic rationality that has the categorical imperative of Kant written into it, which is a concern for the whole of humanity. And that's, that's really completely different from formal rationality. Thank you. Thank you. If I may maybe ask one more question and I'll, I'll let yep. Rock uh, take over. Yeah. Um, so I understand that uh, Jacques' idea and yours is to replace, you know, purely financial accounting with a tri-capital kind of accounting where you have, you still have productive capital, but you also have humans and nature uh, as capitals that has to be conserved. And I. I hear from Jack that he says that nature can be monetized, but not for market pricing, but for conservation. I, I think that's what I understood, right? But I also see in your text that you talk about representation and in, in Jack's contribution uh, just now, he talks about the German model of co-management. So here's my question. How do you, how do you represent nature? Like who, who can talk for the bees and for the, you know, Yes. Uh, and for the the earthworms and all these beings that we that we need in our agriculture and our industry, uh, are you going to put humans in charge of talking for uh, nature, or what? What are your ideas about this this kind of representation that you're talking about? Okay, thank you very much, uh, question. As a matter of fact, if you take uh, the example of nature, 
there are two uh, two elements. First, there are some uh, people in charge of defining the state of conservation of nature. It means, for example, specialists of ecology who are saying <coughs> this uh, ground, this uh, earth is not uh, is used in a way which is not compatible with the conservation of the nutrients. So there are an army of specialists of ecology, at least in big firms, which who are uh, who have the speech to say if the conservation of nature is not good or uh, is sufficient. This is, uh, these are problems of uh, scientific problem of conservation with the help also of some people who know well, well the situation, for example, fishers for fishes and so on. And there are the problem of distribution of profit and the control of the conservation of uh, and the, the level of the budget for you know that in care uh, capital is not an asset it is a debt it means a kind of budget for conservation so here this is another problem it's not it's no longer a problem of scientific determination of a constraint it's a problem of respect of the calculation of cost and no distribution of a fictitious profit so here you have representatives of uh, the free capital and notably nature, other people from the, the preceding problem. And these representatives for nature, of course, nature cannot speak. Well, and uh, we are obliged to take account of people who could uh, speak for this problem instead of nature. What kind of people? For example, um, uh, people who live uh, near in the forest, who are uh, these tribes, for example, today in Amazon, they should have, within the care model, they should have a representation in the firms where the firms are uh, working in these uh, countries. This is one example. The systematic representation of these people. And of course, you can imagine that you have also inside these firms some uh, workforce who are very interested in ecological problems who could have also a speech. And of course, you can imagine that there are some ONG, uh, what is the uh, ONG in French, uh, you know and uh, representative of ONG and so on. So this is a, a debate about the representation. This representation must be a systematic one. And after it is a, master, a matter of um, uh, control of the uh, good types of representation in line with the specific uh, data or uh, <clears throat> situation in different countries. This is broadly the case. Thank you. Thank you. Rock, do you want to ask a question? Uh, yeah, sure. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I just may add my two cents here. Also, I think it might be relevant to, to highlight uh, a fellow Frenchman Bruno Latour's notion of a parliament of things uh, here in terms of, um, uh, well, we could say, yeah, the, there's when we talk about ecology specialists and experts, there's also a lot of yeah epistemological etc. problems uh, there in terms of you know positivist orientations etc. etc. Um, and here, well, uh, yeah, just highlighting that uh, yeah, learning how to listen to nature and then speak on behalf of within the whole web of life uh, that is present at you know kind of nested scales uh, is quite the challenge and, and kind of 
augmenting kind of the the current economic system of that kind of outlook seems seems quite quite the quite the challenge uh which uh, I, might I, uh, lead me up i have a yep i have a provocation maybe um so there is a new movement which is called the sovereign nature movement and um so these are people who believe that we have the technology today to create what they call daos distributed autonomous organizations um so one of their ideas uh is to give a legal representation to a forest through a dao which is a kind of ngo that would have sensors that would have all kinds of you know observation capacity and that would have the legal power to um, um, hire lawyers that would act on its behalf. Uh, it's just a provocation. Do you think this is a realistic thing or do you think this is a, something that you think is more uh, fantastic at, at this point? Well, I think it's an interesting way of thinking because it combines the newest technology with actually the, you know, the traditions of the indigenous people who, who gave agency uh, to national forces. So I, I think it's an interesting way of, of thinking. Um, I am aware of this uh, numerous uh, proposal of uh, lawyers, notably. I am perfectly aware. And uh, I think it's an interesting idea. And it could be uh, combined with KRTDL. But uh, the idea of KRTDL is based on today's um, law on accounting. If you consider the today's law of, uh, in matter of accounting, the people in charge of uh, the business are, have an obligation to conserve the financial capital. There is no obligation to personalize this capital, you understand? But lawyers are obliged, this is a, their specific way of thought, they believe that you need to have a personification of, a, of nature in order that the, the, it could be a, a, a good law. But accounting is a good proof that it's not, it's not uh, obligatory. You could have an obligation to respect uh, financial capital without any personification of capital. And uh, uh, this is uh, uh, the case in uh, big companies. Uh, there is, uh, for, for, so the, the global uh, financial capital must be conserved and it is uh, obligatory. Uh, but why not a combination? I am not uh, against. These people are fighting for the same cause. So you, uh, just uh, I would say that unfortunately accounting is not known by these people, except for some uh, uh, specific lawyers. We are, I am uh, working with in France with some uh, lawyers about this uh, topic, notably the problem of the uh, distribution of fictitious profit. There is, it is a, a crime in France. Uh, you have uh, not a crime, but a delict, and you could go to jail. So if capitalists don't conserve their capital, they could have big problems, five years of jail. Normal, but, and uh, so the instruments in law are very, very diverse and very impressive in matter of financial capital. You have just to apply the best one, but there is no contradiction with uh, these lawyers. Okay. I, I have a fundamental issue I, I would like to discuss. Um, so there was a study some years ago about the CAC 40 in France, the four biggest companies on the French stock market. And it came to the conclusion that if these companies had to apply true costs, none of them would be profitable. So isn't that a bit um, contradictory where you, you, know, you want to introduce a system 
that is compatible with the market and that doesn't want to change the market, but actually, if it would be applied, it would be fundamentally in contradiction with the current system. So what does that tell you about your strategy? I'm, I'm not sure. Is that like a hack or is it reformist or is it revolutionary? So what is the strategy that is behind that kind of uh, a bit of a paradox, I think? I understand that. But uh, my, my answer is uh, maybe a simplistic one. If you change the cost, you change the price. And uh, the big problem is that uh, today the price are not correct ones. I, I think that uh, Sebastian could agree with me. These are totally uh, incompatible prices with the conservation. So you have to change the whole of the system. And after, uh, a very uh, important thing is that in matter of profit, because in KRTDL there is a profit. Well, if a, a firm could uh, uh, have a lower cost, but true cost, uh, why not? <laughs> they are very clever, so they give a profit. But uh, there is no case in, uh, in care that you could uh, oblige a firm to distribute profit on the basis of a predetermined rate of profit. This is the big problem today. So these people are able to ask for 15% of uh, this uh, uh, profitability, and this is not compatible with uh, the, the conservation of nature and not compatible with any conservation of uh, capital. So this is. Uh, uh, a big problem. Um, maybe I, I'd like to add something. You know, it also depends on our theory of uh, profits, which relates to the theory of price. You know, pro profit uh, in the institutional or post-Keynesian literature is uh, largely the result of uh, you know the ability of firms to mark up costs of production. So you have your average costs of production across a range of outputs, and you mark them up based on your ability to mark up, which is your power situation within a given industry and market, and based on uh, you know, what, the, what the past price, uh, you know, the, the history of, of that market, the history of that industry. So markup pricing, and there's about 100 case studies that were conducted by Frederick Lee, one of the leaders in the heterodox economics movement and um, you know that shows the reality in many industries of markup pricing so profit is 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 not something that necessarily goes away if you have full cost uh, full real cost pricing you know you, if the if the profit is a markup uh, you know that would just change the nature of the markup it would just shift it higher um, it doesn't mean that the profit will disappear. So this will continue to be not a natural relationship, but a social profit is a social uh, construct. And it depends on uh, these power relations between consumers and producers in a given market. So I don't think that full real cost pricing will automatically eliminate profit. Rock, your turn. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so I might uh, yeah, follow up on that. Uh, essentially, we're kind of in the territory of what is kind of the theory of change here, right? In, in some sense. And we, we spoke about like uh, reformist versus kind of revolutionary. And um, well, if, if, if we can kind of summarize like it, one level, it's about uh, bringing back the externalities, right? Both in terms of towards nature, but also like time. Um, uh, like one one thing in this regard would be maybe interesting. Just your two cents on uh, the well, the not Nobel Nobel Prize in economics in two thousand eighteen, uh, Willem Nordhaus. Uh, if if you are familiar with his work. Um, but it was quite a controversial um, kind of award in that, um, well, he was awarded for kind of integrating climate change into long-term macroeconomic models. 
um, but essentially like his uh, bottom line argument was that uh, we should kind of allow for a three degree uh, warming of the planet. Um, uh, are you familiar with uh, with that work and, and arguments? A little bit, broadly, broadly familiar. Yeah. Well, I'm not myself. Uh, I just uh, thought it might be interesting to to bring up. But... I remember that Steve Keen called Nordhaus a criminal. <laughs> so he wasn't yeah. he wasn't happy at all with that kind of work, which he said you know under underestimated uh, the 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 cost by making some arbitrary uh, uh, axiomatic uh, judgments. Uh, but that's that might then bring to the the last question we had, which was about. So when you talk about future generations and, and to you, you say that you we need to register the needs of future generations. So how do you do that? What's the mechanism that can account for that? Well, I, I tend to agree with the position that was developed on this by Carl William Cap that this is largely a society's ethical obligation. It's a normative process in which this has to be decided because there are many intangibles uh, such as the futures, future generations needs that we don't know, uh, future generations technological capabilities or incapabilities. Uh, and as a result, uh, you know, CAP proposed a precautionary and preventative approach ethics. So an ethics that is designed to reduce or prevent human suffering. And from this preventative approach of preventing human harm, uh, harm to humans, uh, you get to this precautionary approach. And precaution means that if you don't know, you need to make sure that you err on the, on the right side. And that, of course, then also contradicts the work of people like Nordhaus that you cannot establish some sort of scientific uh, model that says, okay, three degrees uh, warming is okay, or 3% growth per year is still okay. For So we simply don't know these things. So it's it's best to err on the, on the right side. And this is why CAP proposed first and foremost to get the cost, oh, understanding of the cost, right? So this is a scientific quest an accounting quest, it's interdisciplinary, because if we don't even get that right, we have no chance of determining what is preventative and precautionary. So the knowledge base is clearly important. And then we have to have a societal normative, and we see this now with COVID-19, these decisions revolving around human life and health are political, they are normative, they are societal, and there's no escape from that. But what we can uh, deliver as scientists is the information and the knowledge uh, that would enable society or the political process to make a uh, well-informed uh, normative decision on, on this matter. And again, from from my from my orientation, I can say this this these key words of preventative and precautionary because they do not really resound in the mainstream literature. The mainstream literature does not think in these terms. But people like uh, Georgesco Rogan, Nicolas Georgesco Rogan, was clearly arguing for precautionary approach, and, and Carl William Cap and Kenneth Balding. So these are the people from within you could say economics usually associated with heterodox economics who uh, uh, would take such an approach uh, which is fundamentally different from the mainstream yeah thank you okay. um rock i don't know what you think but i think we kind of rounded the discussion and it's about an hour yeah uh well maybe just one last bit uh like i think we mentioned um a few times now that uh at, at, you know, when it comes down to it, this is kind of a political challenge, almost first and foremost, in terms of uh, kind of, you know, introducing these new costs, uh, institutionalizing these new forms of decision making that could kind of bring that in. And I was just wondering if you had uh, either in your work or in your, you know, kind of personal uh, reflections, where would be kind of the main leverages or, or like loci of, of, of or, or, you know, where should we exert our strategies in actually uh, institutionalizing or implementing these things? Uh, 
Is it, uh, you know, through academia, appealing to policymakers? Is it, you know, activism? Is it all of the above or, or something else? Uh, where do you see kind of the key, key area of struggle that we should be focusing on? Well, I tend to agree with uh, with Jack's work, and that's why I like Jack's work very much. That it has to do uh, with the legal structure of capitalism, and uh, so counting law is is clearly we cannot, uh, you know, win the political challenge if the accounting law continues to be wrong, uh, because then we would have maybe a good political process with countervailing power with NGOs and academics and politicians um, that that. Uh, that get this right, but accounting law will continue to uh, make uh, formally correct, but uh, otherwise quite irrational decisions. So it needs to be uh, one at that level, but uh, that's Professor Richard's work as well, saying that you, you, the struggle for the, the legal work uh, you know, is 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 political itself. And I found if I found these insights that his work. Um, created uh, on the uh, undemocratic secrecy that prevails in defining accounting standards, I find that shocking. Uh, you know, how accounting standards are defined in secrecy, uh, in undemocratic ways. So this, to me, I personally think that, you know, you, you need to start, this is, this is where the battle needs to be, be fought uh, at, from the root, because that's the, the root of the problem. If you don't fix that, all the other stuff will not, will always just deal with this, the knock-on effects. You need really at the source to cut out the problem at the source. It's like a toothache, you know, you're not gonna, at brushing more, your cavity is not gonna go away. The cavity is there and it's festering. You need to have the cavity and you're too thick. So it's like uh, Keynes said, uh, economists are dentists. So if economists are dentists, we need to uh, really have a root canal. Um, and uh, without the root canal, it's not going to work. Okay. Thank you so much. Mm, I think, yeah. Uh, uh, Michelle, did you have anything? No, may maybe Jack, do you, do you want to conclude? Maybe uh, if you have any extra conclusion that you want to transmit to our listeners? Uh, I would only uh, just say a few words about in France. Uh, there is a movement of uh, um, economy social et solidaire, uh, social and solidarity economy, and also the movement of commons in, in line with Ostrom. And these people are very much interested in the care model. So uh, we developed experiences today, concrete experiences of the care model but there are also experiences in big firms because firms are in competition between themselves, even big, to, to prove that they are ecological ones. So there is a growing um, experiences. I am not aware uh, totally because uh, I'm not able to follow everything. And the idea is to, to, to promote some books of experiences to prove that it is possible to act and uh, also to propose to some uh, governments to have a, a parallel uh, ecological accounting, parallel to the IFRS or the wild, because you, we can dream that there is a revolution, but the first step is promoting these experiences with the help of people like you and, and to discuss about uh, 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 some progress and some corrections and to propose books of experiences and also to try to introduce uh, legislative proposals in some uh, advanced states and after you could hope that there is something to change but uh, it's not simple but possible in my view. I just want to add, uh, Rock, that um, so in France there is Coop des Communs, yes. uh, which is a collaboration between Commons and uh, ESS yes. uh, people, and they've been working with uh, Jacques on, on various concrete 
experiments with real existing uh, entities. So this is a this is a great uh, opportunity to to look at uh, you know how does it work out in practice. So I I think that's a very good direction uh, that your work has taken there. Excellent. Yeah, and I think it's it's crucial that we end on this you know point of. Uh, where there are already, you know, active struggles and and you know the actual subjects of uh, that that are spearheading this reform, and and to see where you know perhaps some listeners could join in and uh, yeah help create this change, make it possible. So with that, uh, I suppose we we will conclude this session. Uh, we will also be happy to collate all of the kind of references you've provided, both in terms of books, uh, movements, and so forth, and it will be all available um, on the SPIDERS platform. Uh, thank you so much again, Sebastian and Jacques, for joining us today. Thank you, Brock. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Very, very interesting work. It's really, uh, it was an honor to be able to learn from, uh, from you guys. There's a lot to read and a lot to learn still. Thank you very much. Very thank much you. so. Thank you. Bye. Yeah. Until next time.